Okay, I'm glad you're here. And uh, there's a lot to talk about. Um, the, we're, we're focusing today on, 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 on Yaakov, on our forefather Jacob, and a, uh, a momentous sort of climactic moment in his life, which I think is, is, is very relatable and something that uh, I think all of us are going through or all of us uh, have gone through at different points or, or just, just uh, we'll get to at some point in our life. And his uh, approach and how he gets through it is instructive for us and for all future generations. And so what period in his life are we referring to? So it's, it's, this is right before his, his wrestling with the angel. And um, just to sort of give you the, 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 the situation, just to spell it out for a moment, he's, if you remember, we'll just recap his life very, very quickly. He's been told by um, his brother Asav that he's going to kill him, basically. So uh, Yaakov's mother, Rivka, tells him to, to flee and so he goes to the house of Lovin, and he's at uh, Lovin's house for quite a number of years. And Lovin is really associated with really the the headquarters of evil. I mean, Lovin, spiritually speaking, is is really really bad news. And in fact, uh, I learned from Rabbi Wolfson that in terms of reincarnation, Lovin becomes reincarnated as Bilam. Bilam, of course, tried to eradicate the Jews, and, and, and so did Levin in his own way, by just cutting, cutting off the family of Israel right at its inception. So, so Levin is, is really considered, uh, really, spiritually speaking, like the height of negativity. Yaakov just manages to escape alive and intact with his family from Levin's house. And now he's going back to Israel. So you think that at this point... He's just gotten over the worst of what he has to get over. And now, remember, it's been about 22 years since his brother told him that he's going to kill him. So, so if you put yourself in, in, in Yaakov's shoes at this point, you might imagine, well, 22 years, that's a, that's a long time for people to just sort of like forgive and forget, to, to get over something, for tempers to cool. And what he's just found out is more or less waiting at the border for him, is Asav with 400 soldiers. So, I mean, the, the mind swims at what Yaakov is going through at this point. Not only hasn't his brother forgotten about the situation, but he's there with an entire army to not just kill him, but seemingly kill his entire family. So this is, this is bad news. This is really bad news. And Yaakov, so you ask yourself, okay, Yaakov, we, we were talking about it last week. So the sages say that, that Yaakov is the, 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 the ultimate, the choice of the Avos, meaning to say the greatest of the Avos. It's hard to imagine. Greater than Abraham, greater than Yitzchak. Or if you want to say he's greater because he's the culmination of Abraham and, and Yitzchak. So however you want to learn it out, nonetheless, Yaakov is considered the choice of the Avos. So, so what is he experiencing at this moment? And it's amazing.
to read the following words from the Torah itself. Yaakov became very frightened and it distressed him. He was afraid. He was afraid. This is a real human emotion. Remember, these were human beings. All the people in the Torah are human beings. Yaakov was afraid. So, if you're afraid in your life, if you're experiencing fear, Yaakov Avinu was experiencing fear. And, and if you look at this Pasuk, at this verse, it's very, very interesting. It says, Yaakov became very frightened and it distressed him. This is uh, chapter 32, verse 8 in uh, Breshis, in Genesis. So, this was a, an idea that came to me, and I later saw it in a, in, a, in a Sefer, so I guess this is an old idea. Yaakov became very frightened, and it distressed him. So I wanted to say the following. It distressed him that he became frightened. In other words, if you really believe in God, it bums you out when you get afraid of other people. Because you feel like I should be above that or beyond that. And so he was frightened and it distressed him. So that's one level of understanding it. The classic way of understanding this, the Rashi, is that Yaakov became very frightened and it distressed him. He became very frightened because he thought he might be killed. And it distressed him because he thought that he was going to have to kill others. And you know, there's that famous Golda Meir um, quote, which... Maybe she learned it from this Pasuk, which is, she said, we can forgive the Arabs for killing us, but we can't forgive them for making us kill them. That's one, that's one quote. And another quote, just while we're quoting Golda Meir, which is also very beautiful, is, um, there will be peace in the Middle East when the Arabs love their children more than they hate us, which is another beautiful quote. But here you have a war that's about to take place. And uh, and it occurred to me that you see something very amazing about this. Which is, which is that, um, well, let's just tell you what... Um, Yaakov's strategy was, and then, then we'll better understand what I'm about to say. So Yaakov initiated three paths for success in this situation. Um, prayer, praying to God, talking to God, giving gifts to his enemy, trying to appease Esau with, with, with presents, and third, preparing for war. And they say that, that the, um, um, forgetting which sage in particular in the, in the Gomorrah would, would read over whenever he had to deal with the Romans, would always go over this portion of the Torah and study Yaakov's approach because this is sort of like the essence of, of, of being in a very tight situation. Like when you're really, really squeezed by life, that's what we're talking about right now. This is, this is it right here. You know? So, so now let me tell you 
what I think is remarkable here, and which is a message for us for all time. Do you know what it doesn't say Yaakov did? You know what it doesn't say Yaakov was going to do? Run or retreat. And I think that that's remarkable. That's not even considered an option over here, that Yaakov retreat or run. He has to engage and he has to confront his situation. And that's true for us too. We have to engage and we have to confront whatever situations that we're in. And there are different, different ways of doing it. Sometimes it's through prayer. Sometimes it's through gifts. You know, confrontation, as Yaakov teaches us at this critical moment, isn't always just, well, you know what, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Or, you know, engaging, engaging with, with that challenge can also be done through, you know something? I don't know if, you know what, this is, this is an early birthday present. It's an early holiday gift. You know what, this is a belated birthday present. You know what, I saw this and I was just thinking of you. You know, have you ever heard the expression, kill him with kindness? It works, by the way. It works. You know, there's a weird dynamic, interpersonal dynamic. I know if I, I've experienced this. Where you, um, I'll just make up the details, but you'll, you'll get to, you'll understand what I'm talking about. You go, you know, that person, I really don't like that person. I really don't like that person. You know, whatever it is. I just, and then the person invites you to a party that they're having. I'd love to go. Well, I thought you didn't like them. Well, no, you know what it is? I thought they didn't like me, so I didn't like them. <laughs> when I found out that they like me, I'm perfectly fine with them. In fact, I like them even more right now. So, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times, you don't like someone because you think they don't like you. Well, you know what? Sometimes other people don't like you because they think you don't like them. <laughs> Can you imagine someone who you think doesn't like you all of a sudden gives you a present? <laughs> oh my God, that's fantastic. So, so, but remember, so Yaakov is, is confronting his situation through prayer, through gifts, and also through preparing for war, if it has to come to that. Right? Remember, Yaakov, approximately 22 years before, runs away from Asaph, from the advice from his mother Rivka, who is a prophetess, by the way. She told him, run, flee. So, in other words, that could have been an option here. He finds out, Asaph is waiting for me with 400 soldiers. He did it before. It wasn't just his advice. It was the advice from his mother, one of the holiest people who ever lived. Why not take it again? But he didn't do that. Because God told him, go into the land. So he thought, okay, i got to move forward. So this idea of moving forward is so important. It's so Absolutely critical. Probably the best Torah that I've learned all year, I heard in the name of the Sfas Emes, on the words Lech Lecha, Hashem's command to Abraham to go to the land. So the Sfas Emes says that that was a command to every Jew for all time. Don't stop moving. Keep going. Whatever is going on in your life, 
Keep moving. Don't stop moving. That's on all of us for all time. And you know, for a lot of people, we talk about avoda. Avoda means work. And it, it's got a lot of different levels. It's, it can mean holy work also, like the, the, the offerings that were brought in the holy temple. That, 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 that's called avoda. Okay? So that's a different form of work. Prayer is called avoda shabalev, work of the heart. But avoda, you also have something called avoda kasha, which is hard work. That's like, you know, moving boulders around. So it's physical labor. So you see this, this idea of avoda actually goes from, from the mundane to the, to the sacred. But it's always used this word. So, so we have a, 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 a very landmark verse in the Tehillim, in the Psalms. It says, Ivdues Hashem besimcha, meaning serve God with joy. But it hit me one time that you can learn it a different way. Ivdu, avoda, can also mean hard work. In other words, sometimes it's hard work to serve God with joy. It's not always easy. And I know for a lot of people, just getting out of bed in the morning is the biggest avoda that they're going to do all day. Is clawing yourself out of bed. And for a lot of people... They wake up, they're, Ace, they're, they're Yaakov, and the day in front of them is Esav with 400 soldiers. <laughs> and they're like, oh man, how can I? But, but what did Yaakov do? What's our command? Face the day. Don't stop moving. In fact, one of the very first things it says in the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, one of the very first things it says in the entire, the entire thing is, Rise out of your bed every morning like a lion. Got to be like a lion to face the day. So how do you do it? You know, I, I was sort of kind of thinking about where Yaakov was at this, at this point. And it just some, an idea came to me. I just I'll share it with you. You know, Yaakov at this point is between... Lovin and Esav, or between Esav and Lovin, right? He hasn't quite engaged in that ultimate confrontation with Esav yet. But he's been told that 400 soldiers are waiting for him and his family. So, so he's in between these two places, Esav and Lovin. And I was kind of just thinking about that. And later on in the Torah... Parshas Ki Tavo, oh, I'm sorry, Parshas Ki Tzetze. This is, uh, if you want to see it, it's in, in Devarim, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 21, verse 10, right at the beginning. It says, Ki Tzetze la milchama al oivecha. When you go out to confront your enemies in war, and then it goes on, and it tells you uh, what to do. It says that, that Hashem your God will deliver them into your hand and you will capture its captivity. Very, very uh, amazing Pasuk, that when you go out into war, you should have confidence in God. So, it says, just to look at the words more carefully, when you go out to war, it says, So, the English translation is against your enemies. 
But Al means above. It seems that the Torah is giving us a, an etza, a bit of advice, how to confront the challenges in life. You have to be involved. They talk about this, this dual approach, above but within. Al means above. You have to be above your enemies. Meaning to say you have to have confidence that God is there with you and guiding you. Now, the word Al is spelled Ayin Lamed. Now, where is Esav right now? Where is Yaakov, rather, right now? Between Esav and Lavin. The first letter of Esav is Ayin. The first letter of Lavin is Lamed. Ah. I want to say it's a reference to this Pasuk right here. You have to be, like, when you're in that tight squeeze, <laughs> when you're between Esav and Lavin, you have to remember God is with you in all of your battles and you have to be above above your confrontations. You have to know that God is there with you. Okay. So, so this idea, I, I heard this quote in the name of Eleanor Roosevelt that you have to condition yourself to do one thing that scares you every single day. It's a, you know, if you think about all the phone calls that you're probably putting off making, if you're like me, because they're just hard calls, you know. And you say, I don't have time to make those calls. You know how long those calls take? About a minute. <laughs> you definitely have time to make the call. Definitely, definitely have time. But you correlate the stress level with the amount of work, and now it seems like a very long call. It isn't a long call. All right, let's say it's a half an hour. Let's say it's an hour. That's really long. That's really, really long. You know, I was on the phone with AT&T for over an hour, for an hour and 16 minutes. And I was such a sucker, you know? The, the, I've been trying to bundle together the different services because I realized, you know, you can actually get a cheaper bill if you do your internet and your, your TV and your wireless and your landlines. If you put them all together, you can get a better deal. So I've been working on this for weeks, okay? It's a little bit insane. And, and still, still have not really made a breakthrough on this. But I finally got this, this, this woman actually from, I, I don't know if she was in India at the time, but she had a, a very strong Indian accent. And she was the height of confidence. I mean, she was like the best person that I had spoken with. And like I said, I was with honor, you know, because after you hang up from a call, you know, sometimes you can check. How long was that call? That seemed like a long time. It was an hour and 16 minutes, okay? It was a long call. And I remember she, she said to me, you know, because we've been with AT&T, at least our landlines, for I don't know how many years, like years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And she said, oh, Mr. Sachs, um, I see that you're a very long-time customer, and we're running a special promotion right now. And just just for you. And... I went along with the, with the promotion, and I was <laughs> scratching my head. It didn't sound like a great deal. But she, I'm such a long-time valued customer, and she had this really authoritative Indian accent. <laughs> and she seemed so nice, and appreciate my business to AT&T so much. And then, like, really, like, two hours, like, my son, my, my, my 11-year-old has, like, been my partner in terms of calling 
you know, for these phone slams. It's like really hilarious to see him on the phone, you know, like trying to negotiate, you know, gigabytes of data and like, you know, four versus six and all the rest, you know. Anyway, so about two hours after the call, I told him this plan that I was very proud of. And um, he said to me, but we already have AT&T internet and it's not costing us anything. They're charging you an extra hundred dollars for it. And I was like, He's right, you know. And I was just thinking the whole time, but I'm a long-time customer. They have a special promotion for me, you know. And I'm like, idiot, you know. So I called them back. Anyway, we're still in the middle of this story, so we'll figure out how it ends. But, um, but bottom line, bottom line is that... Uh, this idea of confronting challenges, you know, and also, I want to say something deeper now. That's already deep, but this is even deeper, which is, what do you do when you encounter your own imperfection? See, this is, this is, this is often one of the um, critical elements of, you know, what, what separates what type of person you are in terms of what your real level is and your real, um, your real expression of maturity and, 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 and uh, refinement is. What happens when you confront your own imperfection? Meaning to say, there's something that you can't do, you'd like to be able to do it, you know it's the right thing to do, but you can't do it, for whatever reason, at that period in your life. How do you react, and how do you proceed? And so, there's such a range of reactions. Avoidance, denial, anger, Blame, finger pointing, or just saying, you know what, I'm just, I'm, or, or just acceptance, you know what, I'm not there yet. I have to tell the person, I'm not there yet, and be really honest. And that's the approach that I recommend. But the reason why that's often hard is because you have decided, incorrectly by the way, that you are there. And so, so there's an expression and a, a, a moment of humility that has to take place when you confront your own imperfection on a particular issue and you say to yourself, you know what? I, I thought, I hoped that I was a little further along. I see now that I'm not quite there yet. And can I tell you something? You got to be real. You've got to be real, because all these spiritual levels have to be built on very solid foundations. And it's better to go slower than faster and just sort of like be a big spiritual croissant. Lots of air. Looks really high, but you know what? One challenge comes and presses it down, and you're back to really nothing. You know, you look pretty fancy on the outside, but it's a lot of air. 
And then you say, well, you know, if I go a little more slowly, then, you know, everyone else seems to be so far ahead of me and this, that, and the other respect. And it's embarrassing for me to not be doing what they're doing. Okay. So you've got to balance all these things. Okay. But you have to understand that a lot of times the other approach, which might be nicer for one's ego to sort of seem more put together, sometimes that's a very risky strategy. Because later in life, when the winds start blowing very strongly, it can reveal that, you know, the whole thing's been a bit of a game, you know? Not, game is a strong word, but that it, it, it wasn't how it appeared. And then that creates its own, sometimes bigger problems. Um, yeah, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of examples. There are a lot of examples to give. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of an appropriate one. Um, trying to think. You know, I, I'll tell you, I, I'll give you, I'll give you one, because this was a bit of advice that I got um, when I first got married. And, and it's really good advice. This would be an example. But this is just one example, okay? There, there are many versions of this. And this is a very far-reaching idea. But I'll give you one example. When, when you first get married, you know, let's say you, um, in, in this particular situation, let's say you're part of the, the Jewish community. And you're, and, you know, you really prize the community and, and you see your, your, your own marriage as, as sort of like an, an aspect of the greater community as well. Of course, it's your, your husband or your wife. But, you know, you really have contextualized it in, in terms of the whole Jewish people, the whole world, everything like this. And then there's certain, um, certain community events. There's like, say, certain classes that are being given. Or there's certain, like, um, meetings to plan this very important um, uh, weekend, which is going to be taking place, or 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 this program, which is also very necessary for the community, or that that thing, and you want to be one of those people who's attending all these things because because they're important to you, and then also you feel sort of like a, a, a certain sense that there's a level of expectation on you from the other people in the community that you're going to be doing this level of community work. And perhaps we even enjoy doing that and, and want to do it as well for that reason. Well, all that's well and good. But what about the time with your spouse and the time with your kids? And oftentimes, if you totally orient yourself in that way, your shalom bias can really suffer. So the peace and the nature of the relationship at your home can really begin to deteriorate. And so, all of a sudden, you have to say to yourself at a certain point, there's like, well, we need you for this meeting, right? And then you have to say, you know what, I can't go. And then it's like, what do you mean you can't go? This is, or, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a Shiva minion taking place over here, you know? Well, you, you're going to go to that, aren't you? You're going to go every day to that, aren't you? Well, I, I don't know if I can go every day to that. Maybe I'll just go just for one shiva call or whatever it is. In other words, one's 
When's ego, to just call it starkly, when's ego can get wrapped up in terms of their um, reputation and identity on a community level, and yet, at the same point, you've got to understand that the, the core of your business, so to speak, is your family. That's, that's, that's one example. That's one example. Another example is a person can print maybe a more uh, relatable example. This next one is that one might present themselves as being sort of like an active card carrying member of the quote unquote believing community when one when a person has many, many questions and really might not be on board with a lot of the fundamental concepts. And then all of a sudden they've got all these friends and they want to maintain these relationships. And they feel like, well, they've accepted me as a peer. And now they're going to find out that, you know, spiritually speaking, I'm not really a peer. Perhaps they'll think of me as a fraud or reject me. And now all of a sudden, now you've got this conflict of interest between sort of like where you're actually holding spiritually, and all these other agendas. So that's, that, that might be another more relatable example. So, so it's very important that one, like I'm just flashing on this image of the croissant again, that one make themselves very, very real. And one's amuna, one's belief in God, one's belief in the fact that the Torah is from God, these are really, this is kind of like job one, I think. You know, one has to really immerse themselves in these concepts and, and work them out in their own minds. They, they, they have to do that. Because, you know, when strong winds come, you know, if you believe, uh, I'll tell you another thing, maybe even more important than either of those two, understanding the goodness of God. Because if you... if all of us are confronted and, and more and more increasingly with, with very hard challenges. And if you don't believe deep, 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 deep down that God is good, then this is a very hard life to live. You know, you can believe in God, but I'm telling you, if you don't believe that God is good, whatever God you believe in is not the God of the Torah, is not the Jewish God. It's not enough just to believe in God. There's certain other things that come with believing in God if you want to believe in God as Jews believe in God. And one of the primary aspects of it is believing that God is good. You have to. You have to. Because otherwise, then what is this? This is like some, some horrible hellhole that we're living in. I mean... And that can't be the case. That can't be the case. It isn't the case, by the way. But it also is unacceptable to even imagine that it is the case. So, if you look at the way Yaakov talks to God here, it's really beautiful. <clears throat> it says, this is now... Um, 32.10 Then Yaakov said, God of my father Abraham 
And God of my father Yitzchak, Hashem who said to me, Return to your land and to your relatives, and I will do good with you. Right? What, what is he, what is, what's the subtext there? Yaakov's saying, God, this was your idea that I go back to Israel. Right? You're telling me to go back to Israel, and now here's Asa with 400 soldiers waiting to kill me and my family. This wasn't my idea, God. This was your idea. And then it, that's the end of that verse. And now a new verse starts. It's like amazing how these verses are divided up. But continuing the thought. I have been diminished by all the kindnesses and by all the truth that you have done for your servant. For with my staff I crossed this Jordan. Now I've become two camps. Right, let's just take a moment to look at that. Now Yaakov, bless you, now Yaakov is saying, you know something? God is good. It's like, he's understanding it's true. God is the one who told me to go. And God is good. So therefore what? It can't be God's problem. It must be my fault. (laughs) He says, I've been diminished by all the kindness that you've done for me. I started off with one staff. Remember we were learning. He's escaping Asaph. And, and the son of, of Esau, Eliphaz, who's the father of Amalek, right? So Eliphaz is coming and, and, and robs him of everything that he has. Because it says that a, a destitute person is compared to a dead person. So this is how he saved his life. And so Eliphaz takes everything that he has, leaves him with a stick. So he has a stick right now, and now... 22 years later, I heard Reb Shlomo say, he's the richest person who ever lived. Alright? So, you have to understand that the level of wealth, of, this is the original rags to riches story. Literally. I mean, he has a, a stick. That's it. A stick. And from this stick, he now has giant wealth. Giant, giant, giant wealth. And he's thinking, you know something? I got cashed out of heaven. I got cashed out. You know what that means? You know that phrase? That's a, that's a, that's a, a gambling term, a Las Vegas term. When you get uh, chips, right? Let's say you have chips. The chips stand for money. And then when you, want to, uh, when you want to stop playing, you do something called cashing out. You take your chips, you turn them in, and then you get the money, Right? So, so we have such a concept with mitzvahs, meaning to say that sometimes if you get, like for instance, one of the answers, it's a very deep and long subject, unanswerable ultimately in, 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 in this dimension, why the wicked prosper. But one of the explanations of why the wicked prosper is even the worst person is doing good things. Even the worst person is doing some good things, right? And so God gives them their reward that would otherwise be for them in the next world, gives it to them now. So, so to speak, you're getting cashed out of heaven. Do you understand? Because all the reward from the next world is being given to you now so that you don't have any place in heaven afterwards. So Yaakov is thinking, I've gotten so much, I've got these two, I, I started with a stick, I've got all the wealth in the world, 
Maybe, he says, I've been diminished by your kindness. It's a very poetic way of saying, God, you gave me my whole reward right now. Okay? So that's, that's his fear. He also fears that he's done something wrong. Maybe, maybe he sinned. He's thinking, God is good, so if there's a problem, it must be on me. So now, he starts praying. He says, rescue me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Asaph. For I fear, lest he come and strike me down, mother and children. Meaning, not just me, but my whole family. So he says, for I fear. So that's so beautiful. You know, Rebbe Nachman talks about how important it is to talk to God and to talk to God like he's a close friend. And look how honest Yaakov is being with God. Yaakov is not saying... Yaakov isn't afraid to say that he's afraid to God. That's the point. His ego and everything like that isn't kicking in like, I'm too holy to be afraid, God. He's not pretending in front of God. This is what we were talking about before. He's not pretending. He's being real. He's saying to God, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, God. Please save me. This is, this is really instructive. And then he goes on and he says, And you had said, I will surely do good with you. And I will make your offsprings like the sand of the sea, which is too numerous to count. So now this is an interesting connection with the Akeda, right? Because God, he's, he's, he's telling God, you promise that my descendants are going to be uncountable. Well, what was the whole situation with the Akeda? Abraham was told that through Yitzchak are going to come all of your descendants. Now, Abraham is told to kill Yitzchak, seemingly. So how does that work? There's a very serious contradiction there, seemingly. So this is what Yaakov is saying right now. You promised me that that my descendants are going to be huge. And now look, now they're about to all become eradicated. Do you hear the parallel? But you know what's even more mind-boggling by the Akeda was that Abraham was going to be the, the agent of eradicating Yitzchak. That just, if you want to just have a level, an extra level of appreciation for what the Akeda was. It's not just that it's going to happen. How could this happen, God? God said, you be the one to make that happen. Wow! I mean, that's really... I mean, that's why we're still talking about it. Thousands of years later, because it was so extreme. So, so Yaakov is in this place. And, uh, and he meets Asaph. He meets him. And you know what? It works out. It works out. And you don't know how it's going to work out. But it actually works out. And that's the crazy thing. It keeps on working out for us. There is no people that's still around except the Jews. 
We're the only people who are still in the game. From like the beginning, it keeps on working out. And if you think back in your own life, dark times that you've had in your own life, well, you're still here, right? So I guess on some level it worked out. And whatever our current crisis is, well, based on the fact that the other ones worked out, and based on the fact that they've been working out for thousands of years, we can have a measure of confidence that this one is also going to work out. And you never know. You never know. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on, you know? I'll tell you, in today's New York Times, do you know that Obama's chief of staff is an Orthodox Jew who keeps Shabbos? I didn't know that. I just read that this morning. He's the closest person to the President of the United States, and it says, Friday, as the sun sets, he takes off at Shabbos. <laughs> J- J- Jacob, Jacob Lou, L-E-W. You can, it's in today's, it's in today's uh, New York Times. And they speak about him so glowingly, just how incredibly honest he is, and how just, they, they, you know, really like the height of just straightness and honesty. Amazing. Amazing. You know, I'll tell you something, whether you love Obama or you don't love Obama, the fact that Obama has made his chief of staff an Orthodox Jew tells you something about Obama. His brother-in-law is a Jew. So, so it's, it's, it's quite impressive. It's quite impressive. So you don't know. You don't know. It's like, you know, I, I, I once thought of it like this. It's like, you know, I don't know if um, how many of you play chess, so whether you can relate to this this example or not. But sometimes you're playing chess, and you know the the, the bishop goes diagonally, and it can go. And sometimes you know when you're playing chess, well, I'm not a good chess player, so so this is probably what I'm about to tell you is like the hallmark of a bad chess player. You're concentrating on one area of the board. <laughs> So you're just kind of looking where the action is, you know, like so. And then sometimes what happens is someone will slide a bishop across the board and everything is different. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. It's like in chess, it's like one of these like, you know, mind expanding moments where you can't even believe that there was a piece in place that's exactly the piece that you need. That's like a game changer. And it wasn't even in your field of vision. So let me relate that to life. You walk into a coffee shop, right? And all of a sudden, there's this guy who you went to third grade with. And that person knows someone, and the next thing you know, you're married. You know, it's like, how did that happen? You, yeah, you went to third grade with them, but you weren't thinking about the entire chessboard. You weren't thinking about, you don't, no one goes through life thinking about every single person they ever met and had some sort of tangential relationship in their life. But that's your chessboard. And God is acutely aware of everyone's chessboards. Every single person, every person you ever met, and how it is, like everything is connected. And then sometimes it's like you think this is impossible. But there's a relationship that's already in place, and it's just waiting for the moment for God to 
move that piece at the right time. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wow, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? You know, I just heard a story. I, I don't want to give you too many details, so I don't know if the story's going to sound interesting when it's like, like 80% censored, but I don't have permission to tell this story. But I'll just tell you one detail from the story. I have a friend who's trying to contact someone else for a very big opportunity. Okay? And how they even met them and how that person came to have such a great situation is, is a wonderful story in itself, maybe for another time. But kind of like a miraculous thing. So, so this friend of mine is trying to contact this other person because he might be able to work with that person. Right? And he's calling this other guy saying, can you get in touch with this guy? Can you get in touch with this guy? And it's time sensitive because it has to happen by a certain point, right? And he can't get in touch with this guy. And it's like, oh man, you know. And then he just kind of let it go. He told me this story yesterday, by the way. The person in, who involved. And then he said, I was walking down the street, walking down Pico, right? And someone grabs me from behind. And it's this guy I've been trying to get in touch with. Alright, now this other guy was in another country. Alright, in another country. He's walking down the street. Someone grabs him from behind and says, hey! He turns around, it's that guy. And then he says to him, I've been trying to get in touch with you. And he, and he says to him, you know, I've been in town for a week. And then he says, where are you staying? And the guy tells him where he's staying. It's on his block. Then he asks him, you know, do you think maybe we could do this together? The guy says, let me look into it. I'll call you back. Calls him the next day and says, yes, to a very big thing. To a very big thing. Not a small thing, a big thing. And this is just a little piece of the story. This is actually, there's a, there's a, a story behind this which is bigger than this story even. You know, one of the ideas that I think, anyway, I don't know if this is, um, you know, the official explanation, of when someone has a, say, a, uh, a, uh, you know, is getting married, they, they, they in shul before the, the wedding, they, they'll throw candy at the person, right? For certain uh, joyous celebrations, like bar mitzvah too, they'll, they throw candy at the person. And I, to me, what it, what it says to me is that the idea is that, you know, that the, the sweetness should chase after you and catch you and hit you, you know? Because sometimes, you know, we're making all the wrong decisions. We're going this way and we're going that way and we're going this way and we're going that way. Is it, look, look how when God wants to give you something, you can be trying to contact someone in another country with no success whatsoever and then they literally grab you from behind. Not, not, not metaphorically. I'm talking about arms around your waist grab you from behind and you don't even see them coming because it happened from behind you. Right? Like the candy hitting you. 
So just in case you think that these things don't happen, they absolutely happen. And I heard this from the person himself yesterday. And I'm telling you, it's an even better story than I'm giving you the details for. A way better story. So, so it happens. So, so sometimes, you know, the thing is, is we just have to be patient. But patient doesn't mean passive. This is the mistake that a lot of people make. People think that patient means passive. Patient doesn't mean passive. Doesn't mean I'm sitting around waiting. Okay, God, okay, okay. I believe in you. I believe that you're good. I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait. No. You've got to work very hard. You've got to be involved. You've got to be confronting, engaging, making those calls. You know, doing what you're afraid of. Because look, the truth is, is that every single one of these character traits is like a muscle. By the way, you know, I'll tell you something. I don't, I don't know if we ever discussed this before. It's a great thing. Remember this thing, because if you're ever sitting at a Shabbos table or whatever it is, this is a great question to ask the table because it leads to wonderful conversation, I think. A very, here it is. If you have, what's better? Let's say you have um, $100. What's better? And, and to give one person who's in need $100 or to give 100 people $1? That's the question. See what kind of answers you get if you ask people that. Like, everyone will have an opinion about that, believe me. <laughs> you know? And you can discuss it. So the answer is, according to the Rambam, give 100 people $1. Now, that's, I'm talking about the basic case. If there's someone who's actually in the middle of a crisis, and that $100 can get them out of the crisis... Okay, well, that, that's a different situation. That's not the question that I'm asking right now. So maybe in that instance, it's best to give the one person the hundred dollars. You have to use your brain. You have to figure out what the situation is, right? But all things being equal, better to give a hundred people one dollar. Now, if you think about that, why? Because it conditions you to give. So, you know, we're so busy thinking about when you give tzedakah, when you give charity, as it's really for the other person. You know what? Giving tzedakah, the act of giving charity, is as much or more something that you're doing for yourself as it is for the other person. Because when you give tzedakah, you're opening up your heart, and believe me, the heart is closed 99% of the time. Our hearts are closed 99% of the time. And you've got to flex that muscle. You've got to open up that muscle of your heart. And condition yourself to giving. And that's what I think the wisdom of this piece of advice from Eleanor Roosevelt is. That if you condition yourself to make these difficult calls on a regular basis, or to do what scares you on a regular basis, you open yourself up and it becomes less hard over a period of time. And then you become more engaged with the outside world and more productive and less fearful. Because fear is this horrible cage that so many of us just, and then we get comfortable in our own cage. And then it's like we're in a a cage within the cage. Because we're just, and then it's like, I know this little space so well. As horrible as it is, and as, as confined and as trapped as I am right now, 
I know that, you know, I know, it's nice, it's manageable, it's a little space, but it's nice and it's manageable. And then, at that point, that's your home. (laughs) And I guess it wouldn't be so terrible, except the world is so big and beautiful. The world is so big and so beautiful, why do we want to live in a little tiny corner? I'm not, I'm not talking about the size of our apartments or our houses right now. I'm talking about psychic space. I'm talking about our, our emotional borders right now. That's what I'm talking about. So, so I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. And I want to talk about the wrestling with the angel itself. Because the next step, the next step before... Yaakov actually confronts Esav is he does something that is, is you could really ask yourself a big question. He goes to get these little jars of oil. And it's, it's you know, I, I, I heard this teaching and I haven't got a source for you. So I don't know if this is a just something someone an idea someone came up with or whether this is an old teaching. I don't know the source. Normally speaking, I don't like to say over teachings like this, except this one is so good that I just want to say it. So it's the idea that Yaakov is going, now he leaves his family, now he's going to be all alone, okay? So he goes across this river to, because he forgot these little jars of oil. And it says that Sadiqim prize everything that Hashem gives them. So that their material possessions are something that are very valuable to them. Because they know God has given it to them. So let me just tell you, bless you, let me just tell you the, the teaching I referenced and then I want to get into that because there are a lot of questions on that. So what I heard, we're always reading this Parsha right around Hanukkah time. So he's going back for little jars of oil. Isn't that interesting, the connection with Hanukkah? So what I heard was that when Noah, when the world was being Start it again. Remember, what was the official sign that Noah could get off the ark was when the dove comes back with an olive branch. And you know, for all time, like a dove with an olive branch in its mouth is the sign of peace. You know, because that was the sign of peace between heaven and earth at that point. So they say, according to this idea, I don't, like I said, I don't know the source, that the, 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 the olives that the dove brought back were made into oil, and that this oil was passed down, and that that's what Yaakov had, and that when Hanukkah, the miracle of Hanukkah came, it was from one of those jugs of oil. That that was the last one that didn't become impure. And the miracle of Hanukkah happens from that. It's a beautiful idea. Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. So that's why I want to mention it, like I say. So, but... Let's just look into, and I just want to suggest an idea that came to me, which is, if you, if, it, it's just a question. Here you have Yaakov, who's in the middle of a crisis, an actual crisis right now. He's afraid that his entire, he and his entire family are going to be wiped out, killed, murdered, flat out. He thinks maybe he did something wrong and he's no longer worthy of Hashem's protection 
Or perhaps God cashed him out. He already gave him all of his reward. He doesn't know. And now he remembers, oh, I've got little jugs of oil (laughs) that I've forgotten. Like, just, who is this person? Who is it? I wouldn't have gone back to get them. I'll tell you that right now. Who, who, Who is this person who under these extraordinarily, crushingly, stressful situation says, oh, there are these little jugs of oil. And he's got it. And it's not, oh, yeah, they're down the block. They're across a river. I mean, these are real lengths he's going to to get these, this oil. And, and this teaching that I told you, okay, if you factor that in, you can say, well, of course, I mean, this is from the dove, from the, like, heaven. I mean, ah. But I don't have a source for that. And Rashi doesn't bring that. So, seemingly, for now, let's just say they're little jugs of oil. So, so maybe, 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 maybe. Who knows? You see, all of us, for the most part, are so concerned with tomorrow and yesterday that we're not living today. We go through life never living today because there's this thing five minutes from now and there's that idiotic thing I said five minutes ago. And when does anyone ever have time for now? By the way, this is the greatness of Shabbos. Shabbos institutionalizes the now in your life. That's why everyone needs Shabbos, no matter what, no matter what. No matter what level you're keeping it at, you need Shabbos. Because only Shabbos gives you the gift of now in your life over the course of your life. It's essential. So maybe, 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 maybe. Yaakov is looking. See, he's looking at all that wealth. I'll tell you something. I grew up in a building in New York City on the Upper West Side. And I, I don't want to mention a name because it's, it's just, I don't want to mention his name. Maybe it would be Lushan Hara if I mentioned his name. But I, I, I grew up in a building with one of the most famous writers in America. Okay? It's, if you know anything about contemporary literature, you'll know his name straight up. And he wrote one of the most famous books of the last hundred years. Okay? And this is not just my opinion. This is everyone's opinion. This is, I'm just telling you, this is a real person, someone who people write books about, okay? That type of person, okay? So I, I knew him. I was just a little kid, but, but my brother was best friends with his son, okay? And we knew him. There he was. Famous guy. World famous guy. He wrote a book, this most famous book, and then... He never had a book after that that even came close to getting the recognition that that book got. Not even close. And you know, living and working in Hollywood, you have many versions of stories like this where people have breakthrough successes and never even come close to equaling that that level of uh, uh, popularity again. And so... 
a lot of times it's very easy for people on the outside to go, ah, he made so much money on that. Ah, you know, people are reading that same book. Ah, people are still talking about that book. What difference does it make? You know what? For you, it makes no difference. For you, it makes no difference. You're right. For him who has to wake up every single morning and realize that he can't duplicate what, what he did five years later, ten years later, fifteen years later, twenty years later, he's incapable of, of, of accomplishing that which he accomplished. And everyone is now, instead of celebrating him, deriding him, because you're the one who only did one of the greatest books ever. Right? Somehow this, this is now a, 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 an opportunity to insult the person. Right? right? You're no longer the author of that book. You're the one who only wrote that one. Right? I mean, the cruelty. The cruelty. The insensitivity. So, why am I bringing this up right now? Because I just want to try to maybe offer on one tiny level an explanation of why Yaakov Avinu is trying to get these little jars of oil. Because it's true, in front of him are like as far as his eye can see are sheep and camel and cattle and people who are part of his camp. As far as his eye can see. Right? But that was yesterday. <laughs> that was yesterday. What do I have right now? Right now I have these jars of oil. And who gave me these jars of oil? And what's oil is light. Light is clarity. Light is the presence of God. Light is God on some level. We say or in so, right? Light without end. That's the name of God. God, you gave me all these things, right? You gave me all these things. Beyond my wild belief, you gave me all these things. But you know something? I need to know that you're with me right now. Rashi says that the tzaddikim value their material possessions. Why? You would think that, that, that it would be... See, this is one of the things that people don't get about Judaism. Why Judaism challenges so many different cultures. Because they say, you should be spiritual like us and reject everything material. And Judaism says, God gave us the material things also. God gave us the material Everything that I have also came from God. I have to value it. That there's no contradiction. That God fills the entire world. It's all an aspect of God. So at this point, Yaakov says, you know something? God gave me those things that, that's for me. That's my personal relationship with God. And he's reclaiming his personal relationship that he hasn't been ba- abandoned. And he hasn't been let go. And it's true, there's a huge challenge and confrontation waiting for him. That he's not going to escape. And he's not going to run away from. But meanwhile, I have to understand in the here and now, God is giving me something and that I have something. And that I have to reclaim that. I forgot it. God gave me those things, and I forgot it. But you know what? God is still giving them to me. They're over there. I'm going to go, and I'm going to get it. Because God Himself is giving me those things. And they're tiny things. Who cares? They're from God. 
If God's giving you something, it doesn't matter how small it is. If it's from God, God is giving it to you. That's the point. Not what it is. The fact that God is giving it to you. Which means that you're in a relationship with Him. Which means that He loves you. Which means that He's mindful of you. Of course, it has to be oil. If you think about what, 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 could, it, what could it be if it's Yaakov? It has to be oil. It has to be light. It has to be light. And how is oil made? Everybody knows this teaching. This is a classic Jewish teaching. You squeeze the olive and then you get the oil. There's an aspect of hardship. But it's the light and the good things that come out of the hard times. That's, that is what oil represents in Torah thought. And so he goes and he gets that. And now, now he knows God is with me right now. Now he has the strength to wrestle the angel. Now listen to this. When he wrestles the angel, this is, I think, a, a, a big thought, okay? When he wrestles the angel, it says, it says, it, it talks about um, two different spellings of this uh, very uh, key word in the verse, uh, and um, the Ramak makes a very interesting comment here. It's um, it's uh, chapter thirty-two, verse thirty-one. It says, "So Jacob called the the name of the place uh, Peniel, uh, Penuel. I'm sorry, and um, that's where the 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 wrestling contest with the angel takes place." Now, it says here that, that it was called Penuel. Here it's called Peniel. It was called Penuel uh, in an earlier verse, in verse 32. That was Machanayim. Okay, so Machanayim is... Um, yeah, that's, that's not the place where they uh, wrestle the angel. Yeah. So, but that, that is the, that's the last word of the previous... Parsha. And there are a lot of beautiful teachings on that also. Um, so, so, so it's, um, so you can look into why he calls it that. Basically, it means the face of God and, and everything like this. So that's very deep. But um, the Radak, one of the great Kabbalists, one of the great, uh, oh, actually, I'm thinking of the Ramak. Anyway, the Radak is also one of the great uh, commentaries. He wants to know why, why this change, these, this different spelling between the two names, right? And he brings up something. It's something that we've discussed at different times. There are certain systems of Torah study where you can exchange letters for, for, for darshaning purposes, meaning for explanatory purposes, certain letters have the same... Uh, same value, sometimes it's the numerical value, sometimes it's, they're coming from the certain parts of the mouth and the tongue and the palate, which um, group together certain letters, and so those can be exchanged. There are different systems of understanding it. So the Radak says that the letters He, Vav, and Yud are interchangeable. And since the two different spellings of this location would require the exchange of a Vav and a Yud, 
you can exchange those and it's still the same place. All right, so that that sort of, um, as Rashi would say, is begging to be explained. <laughs> it's begging to be darshaned. Like, what is going on there? So when I read that, it hit me. Hey, Vav and Yud. Wait a second. Those are, that's an interesting grouping of letters, isn't it? Those are the letters of the Yud K Vav K. Because Hey is repeated twice, right? Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey. So what letters are we talking about in God's name? Yud, Hey, and Vav. Right? And it says that all those can be interchanged. So, so let's just build on this thought now. All right? There are four letters to Hashem's name, and Kabbalistically speaking, one of the cosmic maps of the world involves understanding the world as four separate worlds. Not four different locations, just the spiritual coming down into the material. Okay, so four stratas of spirituality. Okay, but they're called four worlds. Okay, and each one of them, each of these four worlds correlates with a different letter of Hashem's name, Yud and He and Vav and He. Yud correlating with Atsilus, which is the highest of the worlds, beyond, 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 beyond. And the bottom He representing with Olamasiya, that's this dimension, the material, physical world. Okay? So now, the Radak is saying that the letters Yud, He, and Vav are all interchangeable. So, Here's the thought that will make it all come together. So the Balatanya brings, and maybe from an earlier source, I don't know, but a very, very fundamental concept about God, okay? Which is that God exists in this realm, which is where he's the most concealed. God's, present is, God's presence is as present in this realm as it is in Atsilus. Meaning to say, you take the highest revelation of godliness conceivable beyond your even comprehension, and God is equally present in this dimension as He is in that dimension. And through all the worlds, He is equally present, equally present, equally there. So now when you hear that thought, you say, well, okay, if, if the four worlds each correlate with Yud and He and Vav and He, and all of those letters are interchangeable, what's that saying? That the revelation of godliness in this realm is interchangeable with that of Atsilas. Is that clear? Is that clear? I'll say it again. There are four worlds. The top world correlates with the ultimate revelation of God's presence. As they go down to this dimension, God becomes progressively more concealed. You might think that in this realm, God is therefore less present. But what we're hearing is no. God is equally present in this realm as he is in the highest reaches of heaven. Now when you understand that each one of these worlds correlates with a different letter of Hashem's name, 
And we're saying that this particular group of letters are all interchangeable. It's because God's presence is equally revealed in all of the worlds. So the hey, which stands for this dimension, Ola Messiah, is interchangeable with the yud, which stands for atzilus, which is the highest reaches of heaven. You can exchange the yud and the hey. Meaning to say that God's presence above is equally present here below. Now let's build on this concept. Because Yaakov asks the angel a very big question. He says, what's your name? And the angel answers back, why are you asking me my name? And one of the... It's a very Jewish answer, right? <laughs> Answering a question with a question. <laughs> The Jewish angel. So, so by the way, this angel, very critically, is is known as the Yesahara. This this angel is totally like the embodiment of evil. Okay. So, by the way, I heard a drush. I don't know who said this. Kind of a, often quoted that that the nature of the Yesahara, like it always wants to avoid detection. So it's sort of like if you ask yourself a question, which is an important question. It asks you, why are you asking me that question? It sort of like wants to avoid, just keep on avoiding all the big issues, all the big questions. But wait, isn't there a God? Why are you asking me such a question? You know, you've got shopping to do, right? So, so anyway, but I, there's an explanation that's brought here that I want to go just, just build up, okay? Which is that everyone knows, everybody knows that angels have only one mission, Okay? So that when an angel, and what is an angel, by the way? And here's the whole point. Angels are not independent spiritual entities. Okay? All there is is God. Remember, all that exists is God. God is the only thing that truly exists. Okay? We have a reality to ourselves, right? Like someone said, asked Reb Shlomo, a, a little boy, this is brought in Holy Brother, is, is um, are we... Is, is this world a dream, or is it real? And so Reb Shlomo answered this little boy, this world is real in God's dream. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is a very, very incredibly profound statement, than, and yet something a child could understand, right? Amazing, amazing thing there. So, anyway. Anyway. So, there is no... Reality, ultimately, to evil. In fact, it says in the Gomorrah that when Mashiach comes, when the world reaches its time of fixing, that evil itself is going to be shechted. That means its throat is going to be cut, so to speak. That's the language that they use. In other words, there will be no more purpose for evil, so it won't exist anymore. But evil just exists, just exists as a tool of God. In other words, it's just concealment. Remember, the Gomorrah says that the the Sutton, which is the heavenly accuser, the Malachamavis, which is the angel of death, which attacks a person's body, and the Yetzirah, which attacks a person's soul, all those things are one entity. That's just one force, right? And it all works for God, because God uses tests, challenges, to, to bring us to the next level, to bring the world to the next level. So in other words, God is transacting perfection through tests. Through the tests, the tests are the currency of this world. When we overcome tests, 
We clarify creation. We clarify this world. We bring the world closer to its completion. Okay? But it's a limited tool. It only has a finite purpose. And therefore... Okay. Now, what other religions do is they say that evil is an entity in and of itself. But there's a problem with that. Because then you have evil and you have God. You have God and the devil, if you will. And that's a big problem because then there are two entities. That's not Judaism. We say, Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokeno, Shema Echad. God is one. Which means by necessity, evil has to work for God. But we also said one of the hallmarks of God is that God is good. So therefore you realize that evil is a temporary situation just for this period in history and then it's gone. But I want to take this a step further, which is that each angel only has a temporary singular job and it's not an ongoing job. This is the point. This is, it's, a, it's a bit of a subtle distinction, but I think it's a big one. So just listen carefully. In other words, there isn't this entity called evil which gets to keep on going and exists and be very comfortable, right? Because this angel, which is the Yetzirah, the Sitra Achra, says, why are you asking me my name? Because a moment from now, I'm going to be reassigned a new task. And then I won't exist anymore. And then you say, ah, but God is going to send another test to someone else at another moment. He reassigns another aspect of his energy. And then that is no longer Shaykh, relevant, because that test is over. Now God reassigns another aspect of his energy for another test. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that there is no headquarters of evil. That evil is constantly breaking down and being reassigned and disappearing. Because all there is is God. All there is is God. Do you hear? Do, do you hear this point? This is very important because you might think, well, just, uh, okay, God is good, but I'm just surrounded by this, this, this hardened darkness. There's just this darkness that's there. You know what I'm saying? But when you realize that that darkness is constantly breaking apart and being reconstituted, the there isn't really there so much. You've got a clearer understanding of the goodness of God and the all-encompassing aspect of God. As we said, that's why... Yaakov is naming this place the face of God where he wrestles with the angel with two different names with this letter of exchange which shows you that God is equally present even amidst evil and even amidst challenge below as he is above. So, you know, whether you got a TV... Whether you got wireless, you're, this is the God channel. It's on all the time. <laughs> it's what it is. 24-7. It's like, it's the God channel. We're all pixels in it. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it is. All right, let's stop there.